there's a lot of imagery that we're wrestling with today in chapter 20. We're going to look at chapter 19 and 20 today, although we just heard 20 read. Thinking about Revelation, how to interpret Revelation, understand how, what Revelation is communicating, I was actually thinking of a time in my, my own family's life where, you know, there's a kind of fam, what we would call family lore. You know, maybe you have a time or a shared experience in your family where you go back to it, you remember something, and when you're communicating today, you actually go back to that episode or event in your family. Let me give you an illustration out of, out of our own life. Uh, so my wife Heather and I and our two daughters, Rachel and Lauren, were in Costco. The girls were probably in elementary school at the time, and we're going through Costco doing our shopping, and in the cart is a package of turkey. Uh, and I had been on this like health kick, you know, where we're trying to eat low fat and everything and trying to reduce the fat in our household. And, uh, and so I looked at the package of turkey in the cart and I said, is that lean meat? And uh, my wife said to me, well, well, of course it's lean meat, it's turkey. And I said, well, that doesn't, just because it's turkey doesn't mean it's lean. We have to like, don't trust the packaging, don't trust the marketing on the package. And I flipped the package over and I began to read the label to, the, to my daughters and my wife and explain to them how you actually have to read the label and see how much fat content's in. And then I began to use other illustrations. I would pull some steaks and some beef off of, out of the, out of the uh, counter and I'd show them how this was actually leaner than the turkey because, and that they were just becoming susceptible to the marketing schemes of packaging, food packaging. And so this went on for a while and I'm giving illustrations and basically preaching sermon, kind of ranting about how uh, we shouldn't give in to the marketing of companies and so forth. And my family's just standing there like, dude, you, whatever, like what is going on? And uh, so after, I don't even know how long I lectured about lean meat and how to understand lean meat in the food industry, that they kind of just kind of started to walk away and go about their business. And they were like, I don't, what's going on with dad, you know? Fast forward to now, and if you were to talk to our family about that episode, they refer to it as the lean meat episode. You know, like a sitcom, you know, you have sitcoms by their episodes. That in our family was the lean meat episode. And oftentimes when we're communicating as a family, sometimes we'll refer back to that episode or that event in our family's life. And there are times where we'll be talking about something and my daughters will say to me, uh, Dad, I, uh, we're not going to get the lean meat lecture, are we again? Or is that where you're going with this? Or sometimes I'll say, hey, I could give you a whole lean meat lecture on this particular situation if you want it. And they're like, no, no, please don't, right? And so we joke about that in our family now. We reference back to a shared experience to communicate today. We do that as a culture. We do that as a society as well. There are shared experiences or shared knowledge we have as a community that we refer back to in our history that helps us communicate today or that we try to use to communicate today. Think about, for example, how often people refer back to Nazi Germany or back to Hitler to, in today's dialogue about different social issues that we refer back to this well-known because we all understand that and we apply it to today's situation. It's, a, it's an image of a historical image of a, of a past experience that we bring in to communicate about today's events. John is also doing that with the book of Revelation. John is taking historical shared experiences of the Hebrew people from the Old Testament out of the prophets, out of Genesis even, out of the Exodus, and using those images, those numbers, those colors, those images, those past shared events that people would know about to communicate to first century Christians about persecution and staying faithful to God in the midst of an empire that wanted their souls, so to speak. And so 
what's happening here is a lot of this fantasy imagery, this kind of heavenly imagery and imagery that is provocative, but it's drawing upon past experience to communicate. And we're going to see that a little bit as we unpack chapter 19 and 20 today. So let's jump into chapter 19. And as we've already noted in the imagery, we've seen angels, we've seen beasts, we've seen dragons, we've seen harlots uh, riding on beasts, we've seen horses of different colors, we've seen multitudes in white robes, we've seen trumpets and bowls and angels and seals and scrolls, all these images in the book of Revelation. And now we come to chapter 19, and at the right, what chapter 19 is taking us back in the throne room of God. We're back in the worship space of the throne room. And what's happened is the beast has been defeated, the harlot has been defeated, Babylon has fallen, Babylon being a symbol for Rome, that, that this, is, this, this empire has fallen. And in chapter 19 starts out with this word, Alleluia. Alleluia. There is praise and rejoicing in heaven three different times at the beginning of chapter 19. These three praises, these three sayings of Alleluia are praising God for victory over Babylon, victory over evil, victory over sin and death in the world. And so in heaven, worship is happening. There's a victorious shout like an like a army celebrating after coming back in victorious battle. And that's really the image that John has in the throne room of heaven at the, at the end. And it's also leading us into the second half of chapter 19 and into 20, where final, this final battle and final judgment happens. And so it starts out with hallelujah, and then goes into what's referred to as the final battle. And the final battle is broken up into two scenes with a, a mention of a thousand years in between. So you've got scene one, which is the heavenly warrior appears. Then you've got this mention of a thousand year reign of Christ. And then you've got a second scene where there's a scene of final judgment for the dragon, for the evil one, and judgment of the dead. So let's talk first about the first scene the heavenly warrior that shows up. And so this heavenly warrior shows up in, in the image, in the vision of John. And notice a couple things. Uh, we didn't read about this, but one of the things we notice about this image, if you're opening up your Bibles to chapter 19 and look at that section in the second half of 19 about the heavenly warrior, what's happening is this heavenly warrior shows up on a horse, right? And notice that in the scripture, it describes heavenly warrior as having blood on his robe, already. Before entering even into battle, there's already blood on this warrior's robe, and that's because the blood of the, on the robe is the warrior's own blood. He's already been in battle. He's already fought the fight, right? It's not a future fight. It's a fight that's already been made, that's already been done, and really throughout Revelation, we've seen that Jesus is the slain lamb. He's already sacrificed himself. He's already shed his blood for his followers and laid down his life for his friends. And so here we have this heavenly warrior with blood-stained robe to symbolize and, and to communicate he's already fought the battle for us. I think about that. I don't know about you, but that's good news, right? Good news that the battle has already been fought and won through Jesus Christ. The battle over sin and death was fought and, and taken care of at his death and resurrection. So that's good news for us, even as we enter into judgment, right? And he comes with judgment. He comes to hold the unrepentant accountable. And what he comes to bring is a sword, but notice that the sword is in his mouth, which is symbolism, a symbolic message again, that his word, the sword is the word of God. And so this sword coming out of his mouth is actually this sharp word of God. It's the authority that he has 
to speak a word and hold people accountable, and particularly these unrepentant people uh, accountable as well as the evil one. Now, and on the, the other thing that's happened as he's riding into battle, uh, his robe would have exposed his thigh. And on his thigh, he has the words and the message, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is the heavenly warrior. He is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so he is the ultimate warrior with the ultimate authority to kill and to conquer death and sin in our lives. One of the things I think about in, when we think, what we think about and I think about as we look at this heavenly warrior in this imagery, it's showing us that Jesus has the word to speak a word and defeat evil and to defeat the dragon and defeat Satan. There's actually a classic hymn that was written by uh, one of the great people of the Reformation, if you know anything about church history, we won't go into that, but his name was Martin Luther. Martin Luther wrote a hymn that the church has sang for hundreds of years. It's a classic hymn. It's one that's been probably one of the top 10 sung hymns of all time, I would imagine, and it's called A Mighty Fortress, and it refers to God as being our refuge and our fortress. But here's one of the stanzas. Here's one of some of the lyrics of the hymn, A Mighty Fortress. It says this, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. One little word shall fell him. I think about that. That's what's revelation. This heavenly warrior, with one little word, fell, can fell him. The devils, the, the evil, the, this, the, uh, the darkness, the prince of darkness here. And we feel that way. We're, we're afraid. We have anxiety. And what the message of revelation is, is, is a message of endurance and enduring that rage and enduring that season of evil, knowing that ultimately the heavenly warrior comes with the word of victory over sin and death. And with one little word, evil is dispersed and conquered. That's what the image here is of the heavenly warrior. And it's interesting, many people have misinterpreted this hymn as like a, a, a kind of a, a rally cry to be this militaristic uh, church uh, or to sometimes hunker down as a fortress church. That's not it at all. The image here is to trust God and not to trust in earthly military, to not trust in the empire uh, of our day, but to trust in God to be our fortress and our refuge when we're afraid, when we're anxious, when there is evil around us. That's the hope that Revelation gives us. Now, if we go to the next piece, there's a thousand-year uh, mention or a thousand-year reign of Christ, and this is, uh, I think, mentioned twice in Revelation. Now, there's been a lot of ink spilled on this idea of a thousand-year reign of Christ. There's been whole theories and theologies and biblical interpretations around this idea that there's going to be this thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. And some people have interpreted it literally. They're literally, Jesus is going to come back and for a thousand-year reign on the earth uh, with the saints. And so there's been a lot of dialogue and discussion throughout the centuries on this. And it, they break it down into three different ideas. One's called the premillennial theory, or 
that means that we're living before that 1,000-year reign of Christ. The second theory is post-millennial, the meaning that we're already in the reign of Christ or the reign of Christ started or was inaugurated when Christ first came and we're living within that reign. It's not taken literally. And then there's the amillennial position, which is that this is, there's going to be seven years of tribulation and then, then we're going to enter the millennium and that's going to continue forever. So this is all, again, symbolic. No one is interpreting it necessarily literally, um, Yet, as we look at that, and there's lots of writing, and you can go read more about it, I don't think that's the point of this passage. In fact, if we look together at this passage, we can see that in chapter 20, the emphasis is not on the thousand-year reign of Christ. The emphasis in this passage in the beginning of chapter 20 is on the martyrs. Look at how much is taught, how the martyrs are described, the ones that have been beheaded because of their faith, because they did not take the mark of the beast. They did not defile themselves with the empire and the ways of the empire. They have not, they have worshiped God and God alone and not worshiped the emperor. And so these, and they've been martyred for that. They've been killed because of these are the same martyrs that we heard about in chapter six that were crying out from under the altar in heaven. How long? How long do we have to endure this this? This, uh, this persecution. And so, again, they're being brought back into the scene in, in heaven. And what's happening is they're not only, what's happening is they're given thrones. Notice they are given thrones to sit on and help judge. Notice also that they're resurrected a thousand years before everybody else in this image. And so the idea here is that the saints, the ones that have endured and even given their lives, are going to be resurrected ahead of everybody else. They're going to be given thrones to sit with Jesus and judge with Jesus. And so that's the image that's being given here. And they're entering into the reign of Christ. Now, the other idea here is that possibly that Christ, uh, since his death and resurrection, has been reigning that the reign of Christ has always been happening in heaven, that Christ is now seated at the right hand of God, and they're entering into that reign basically ahead of everybody else. So it's their vindication for their martyrdom. It's to say, it's to give them hope in the midst of a very dark time for the martyrs and to say, hey, you will be vindicated. There is hope. You are going to be resurrected to everybody else. So it's in a sense in, uh, giving them hope to persevere and to endure in a time of persecution. So that's really what the thousand years is about. It's more about the martyrs than some theory or idea about what the thousand years is going to be like. I mean, if you think about, there's actually a biblical example that refers to this, and that's when Jesus was on the planet. He was gathered with his disciples, and James and John, two of his followers, they're considered the sons of Zebedee, and their mother comes to Jesus and asks Jesus, hey, could you let one of my sons sit next to you when you come into your kingdom. So like Jesus, when you take the throne, when you become the king of kings and lord of lords, could one of my sons sit next to you on a throne next to you? And Jesus' response to her is, I can't grant your request because those thrones have already been prepared for somebody else. Could it be the martyrs? (laughs) Could it be those that were to give them their lives that John talks about in Revelation, is this same imagery coming into play, right? And so Jesus is saying, I can't even grant this request because we don't know who those people are just yet. Again, this ties together. So we see this in the thousand years. Hopefully it helps you understand that a little bit better, or maybe you have your own interpretation of that. I would also, let's move on. Actually, let's just go ahead and move on to the scene two, which is the final 
judgment. So we had the heavenly warrior, we got a thousand years, and now we're at the final judgment, which happens in the second half of chapter 20. And we see two scenes of final judgment, the judgment of Satan and the judgment of people. Now the judgment of Satan is referred to, uh, interestingly enough, that this idea of Gog and Magog are brought into this image here. John is bringing, again, a shared experience from Hebrew scriptures from the prophet Ezekiel, an image of the prophet Ezekiel in chapters 38 and 39. And in 38 and 39, guess what? Gog and Magog are attacking the people of Israel. In fact, all the nations that have gathered, all the people of different nations have gathered, and they're living in the land of Israel, and Gog and Magog are coming to attack a defenseless group of people. They're living in villages. They're not behind walled cities. They're not protected by any military. And so what's happening is they see this as an opportunity to jump in and take advantage of these defenseless people. And so this, may, this huge army of Gog and Magog are coming against God's people in Ezekiel 38 and 39. What happens is they don't need a military to save them because God steps in rains fire from heaven, and destroys the army in that, in, that ep- in that event in the prophet Ezekiel. So God becomes the defender of the defenseless. And again, this is the image that John is alluding to, that God again is the defender of the defenseless, that God is the one who will conquer Satan and death and Hades and give the final victory uh, in Christ as well. So then after that uh, destruction of Satan comes the, the judgment of the dead. And all these books are opened up. And, and John has this image of all these books. And I, I, my image, I don't know what your image is, but think about it. If you, we use our imagination with the imagery, it's like there's this room and it's filled with books that are being opened up. And each book represents uh, deeds that people have done. And then among all these different books is one book called the Book of Life, which also recalls another image, the Garden of Eden. Because in the Garden of Eden, there were all these trees, all these different trees that Adam and Eve could eat from, all these different places they could go. And then there are these two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when they sinned, when they fell from God's grace, so to speak, they went and they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they sinned. They didn't eat from the tree of life, the other tree. But this tree that they eat from, and then they fall, they become aware of their their nakedness and their shame, and they hide from God. And then the reason that God doesn't allow them back into the garden is that they might eat from the tree of life and live forever. So what the tree of life, the book of life, represents is eternal life. And so will we be judged? Will people be judged on their deeds? Or will they be seen as being in the book of life or the book of eternal life? We'll see Eden restored in chapters 21 and 22, a revelation in the end. But this idea here is, is beginning to emerge in Revelation, this book of life, this tree of life, this idea of eternal life offered to people in Jesus Christ, a heavenly warrior. Or will we be found in the other books and will be judged on our deeds of good or evil in our own lives, Right? Notice that even at the end, though, that what is conquered is death itself. Hades, the grave, represents the grave, and death itself are conquered by God in the final judgment. And those two things are are dealt with, and they no longer exist 
after this point. So what God is doing and what Revelation is explaining is that there's this final battle, final judgment, and in the end, God (laughs) sets everything right. God wins. God is victorious, not only over evil, but God is victorious over death and Hades itself. And so this idea, it comes to us, right? Now, one of the things that we may begin to think about here is like, where's, where's our name? Like, are our names in the book of life? Are we receivers of the book of life? Or will we be judged by our deeds? Will we be judged by some kind of karmic debt system that we sometimes refer to in our culture today? And again, that's another way we communicate. We refer to this, this idea of karma. And in the idea of karma, you and I have to do more good than bad in our lives. And I see us wrestling at times, even times we wrestle with, have I done enough good to outweigh the bad in my life? And that's a tricky game to play because how will you know, right? And will we ever be able to do enough good to outweigh the bad, the sin, the darkness in our own lives, our dark side, so to speak? Will there ever be enough? Here's the thing. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, the heavenly word who's already redeemed us, who's already forgiven us, who already offered us grace, we don't need to worry about that scale. It doesn't mean that we don't need to change and repent and become the people of God, but we need not worry about that name, where our name is, that we will be not judged, but will be judged by the fact that Christ has given his life for us and redeemed us and laid his life down for us, and we are redeemed by the blood of the heavenly warrior. I don't know about you, but where's your faith today? How are you dealing with that? If, if you were to be judged today, if you or the books of our lives were to be opened up today, where would you be found? There was a pastor who often encouraged people to pray at the altar at the end of the service. It's one of the things I miss about being a live worship and having everyone here in this space is that we that time to respond. And so I want to give us some time to respond this morning, wherever you are. Maybe make your kitchen table an altar this morning or make your bedroom an altar this morning. And I want to ask a question because when we come to the altar, oftentimes we're talking to God. And there was a gentleman that would come to the altar week after week after week, and his prayer was the same every week. And the pastor heard this prayer multiple times. And the prayer when something like this, the man would come and pray and he'd say, Lord, please clear out the cobwebs of my life. Clear out the cobwebs of my life. Because there was just so much going on and so much he was confused about and he just wanted the cobwebs from his life to be gone and the errors that he was making and the mistakes that he was making to be gone. And so he would pray this prayer time and time again. And one day the pastor was at the altar and praying with him. and He brought this phrase up again. He said, Lord, clear the cobwebs out of my life. Then the pastor put a gentle hand on his shoulder and prayed, and Lord, please kill the spider. (laughs) Kill the spider. You see, there's a lot of things that you and I aspire to change about our lives, but at some point, you have to kill the spider. You actually have to repent. See, repentance is an aspiration that becomes an action. Repentance is an aspiration that becomes an action. And so we can aspire for things to change. We can really want things, and I think a lot of us do. I, we all do this, right? We all want it to change. 
And in the end, at some point, we actually have to make the change. We actually have to make the U-turn. We actually have to repent. We have to take a step towards God, and we have to make some change in our life for that, to, that aspiration to become reality. And that's what repentance is. And that's been a key theme of the book of Revelation. And that's been a key theme for us uh, this, this series. So I'd encourage you this morning that to make your, wherever you're at, an altar. And that you would come to that altar and not just pray and aspire to be better, but that you would truly come to a point of repentance this morning. Let's pray together.